Hi, for sensitive listeners, please be advised. There's description of a grisly accident in the last quarter of this podcast. Others, let's get to the show. Hi, how are you doing? My name is Daniel Dua. Thank you for joining me on this wonderful Kenyan story. It's going to be one of the most moving stories you've ever had. 20 years is a long time to keep a friendship, to keep going. Life changes, a lot of things changes, and life happens. And sometimes life happens in the most unpredictable ways, and sometimes in very hurtful ways. In this story, you're going to have joy, happiness, sorrow, sadness, and you're going to be moved if you stay till the end. It's an amazing story of a friend of mine I met 20 years ago. When we were starting out as kids, trying to find our way in this big whole world. My guest today, she's a founder, an outlier, and many other things. But most importantly, she shows us what resilience is and how to overcome some of the adversities that life brings away. And also to never forget to be creative and to keep winning. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I can never say that properly. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I want to give you Lissandra Chen, my friend, Lissandra Chen. Let's join in the conversation. This is Kenyan Stories. My name is Daniel Duham. This is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. Hello. Hey. Hello. So I can hear you now. Finally. It's so nice to talk to you after all these years. Yes, it is. I and now that we're on, I I realized we should have done a pre one. I like doing it this way because now we all get caught up together at the same time. Okay, okay, I hear you. It doesn't feel rehearsed, huh? Yeah, you know. I appreciate that. Have you been? Fantastic. When was the last time I saw you? I can say twenty years ago at Nairobi Hospital. At Nairobi Hospital. Yeah. That's the last time we were together. My. So you were there after the accident? Yes. I used to come see you like every day when I could. Man, that's crazy. You know, I find that because of the accident, a lot of my memories were wiped out, like entire chunks. And uh, (laughs) I'm like, I don't remember any of this at all. And my, my sisters and brothers are telling me this stuff. And I'm like, wow. That's crazy. I never thought something like that would happen to me ever because, um, because um, I don't believe in things like hypnosis and things like that. <sighs> so when people tell me things from my past, especially that childhood and, and most of my Nairobi experiences, I can't believe that I'm that person. When I had the car accident, I, um, I also changed my, my Zodiac. I stopped being a Sagittarian. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because I used to be wild, like I used to go on every adventure. And when these guys tell me, I'm like, no, that's not me. Uh, Did you lose the memory from before? I have lost memories from before, a lot of them, and some after, which is weird because I don't know how that works. I understand losing the ones from before, but I can't understand the ones after. So even now you cannot remember some of that stuff? Yeah, some of the things I can't remember. I think I remember in total about six days in hospital, but I was there for a month and two weeks. Yeah, I used to come see you every day. It's 
crazy. Yeah. To be honest, I also have a chunk of my life that I just don't want to remember because it's just too painful. Okay, so you, you purposefully deleted it? You know, when you go through a lot of trauma, and I think I've said this many times, when I was a child, I went mm -hmm. through this condition that I needed to stay in hospital for most of the year. And okay. I needed an operation by the time I was eight years old. So most mm -hmm. of the time, the memories from that period, I just don't mm -hmm. remember because it was just sitting in the hospital waiting to die. That's one of God's like natural defense mechanisms that he gave us. Because, I mean, life gives us a lot, a lot of challenges. You know, I think God just looks at us sometimes and be like, this one cannot handle this. On top of everything I'm going to give her. <laughs> <laughs> so true. It might be a natural defense. Yeah. How's 2020 been for you? Funnily enough, okay, wait, this, this is supposed to be your Kenyan story. But funnily enough, the stuff that people are going through today and uh, this year, uh, mm. and, and I've had a lot of people saying that 2020 has been cancelled, I went through last year and the last five years, so it's like uh, deja vu, and it doesn't get better, it just you have to just decide to move on with life. This is a really nice way to start this conversation on the very lowest. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but uh, to, to be honest, I, I feel like the world changed overnight, and yeah. some of us have gone through this in the last five, uh, six, seven years. Um, You're then, more agile. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there are people who've never gone through this and they're really struggling because this is so new That's for true. them. And they're really stressed up. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, incidents. And yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who reached out to this girl and she wanted uh -huh. to take her life because she doesn't see a future. I understand that vision, though, um, for a lot of us who grew up in the 844 system in Kenya. That programming was intense. You know, anyone listening who went through 844 can, can, can relate. And anyone who's had any kind of awakening can relate to how intense that programming was. It put us in shape. We were like almost in the army. The, the lessons were long. They were intensive. We studied a lot of irrelevant stuff to fill up our days. Everything was structured, especially the people who went to boarding school. So having grown up in this kind of militant kind of system, we're always on trying to be on the straight and narrow, or we are blaming ourselves for not being on the straight and narrow. So I understand where she comes from. She could just be looking at up to the end of the month. What am I going to do for rent? What am I going to do for food? Maybe she has kids. You know, and being from that background, that, that, that programming that we got, it's too much to bear, you know, because we're used to writing agendas, <laughs> ticking boxes, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so the unpredictability is, is uh, people, we're losing people to this. It's a mental health issue, man. I also like that we came from that generation because I, I was against 844 and I was against, even now I'm against the people going to boarding school. I never went to boarding school out of choice. I would have rather walked the two hours to the highway, take a matatu to the school, and then get back to every, school and you know every day. And I was up at four in the morning. Yes. I think kids should be with their parents, if possible, or guardians, whoever is available. Yeah. And also because you learn a lot over the weekend if if you're at home. Mm -hmm. And then I also don't believe in single stream schools because you're going to live in a world where the boys and girls, when men and women, I think the single sex schools in, in this generation. So, it's so dangerous. 
if people are cooped up like that, they're in puberty, they're adolescents, and they haven't identified themselves yet, but the message of um, homosexuality and all the different orientations is being drummed into them every single day. I think that some people won't go down their natural path. Somehow it may be easier to become what other people are because that's what you do when you're a teenager, right? Other people are the ones who really shape your character and personality. So someone who was not naturally born gay may end up being that way. For, for me, it comes not even because of sexual orientation, you know, you're either gay or you're not, whatever. And I feel like people should live whichever life they, they have. But in terms of single schools, I mean, you do not get the socialization that you need as, as a human being because okay. what's the lesson? You're going to come in, live in a world where there are only women or there are only men? I don't see the relevance. I just think it was easier for people, for parents and, and, and administration to control. <laughs> again, once again, we're talking about control, but control is everything that we've, I mean, we've, we've come to uncover that, especially during COVID. Control is everything. So it's just another method to control people and make it easier for them. Because obviously if the girls are together with the boys, it's going to be an issue most of the time. I've always been in mixed schools. I've never been to a boarding school, and it turned out okay. I grew up in a house full of women and men, and you had to find your way around, and there was no, nobody was taken to be better than the other. It was just, we are all kids, and you had roles and duties, mm -hmm. and you had to have fun and, and live okay. your life, you know. It's one of those things. But let's, let's bring it home. So we've been talking mm -hmm. for about 20 minutes, and I haven't even introduced you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> or should I? I think you should. Okay. Uh, my name is Lysandra Chen. I do so now because I just got married. And I am a creative person. That's the best way I can describe myself because um, through the years I've been through the fashion industry in both Uganda and Kenya with two different brands. I've been in advertising for, what, 13, 14 years now? Strategy, that's my thing. Teaching, yes. Definitely farming. Maybe if I had to choose two, I'd say art and farming because that's where I really feel at home. I just call myself a creative because creativity is needed in all those fields and I excel in all those fields. So I'm just a creative. Wow, interesting. So I don't even know where to pick. In full disclosure, we met 20 years ago. We used to do fashion. I remember when we started doing fashion, there wasn't fashion before. The fashion had died and we, we had to create stuff yeah, from scratch. True. Do you remember any of that? Yes. Yep, I remember a little bit of it. I remember the struggling. I remember the organization. I remember some of the people. <laughs> so, yeah, I do have some memories. I don't know if I have this correct, but you came from Jamaica? We're originally from Jamaica, both my mom and dad. My dad came to Africa in 1986. He was the man on the moon. He came to see what is here, uh, what's good, which country is best to settle in, things like that, school systems and stuff like that. He went to Tanzania. And of course, at that time, it was a, a rock, you know, like there was not much going on. Uh, he came to Uganda. That was just after, after war or somewhere thereabouts. And the, the economy was struggling. He went to Ethiopia because... You know, we're Rasta peoples. Ethiopia is our Mecca, in particular Shashamani. He went there, he went to Addis, 
we already had some roots in Africa because, um, you know, it, as part of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is a Rasta group, whenever you travel to Africa and everyone gets to know, and then your house is supposed to be open for other Rasta people who want to come and, you know, try their luck. My dad chose Kenya because the economy was somehow, you know, a little bit stable, you know, infrastructure was there and the, the, the exchange rate was still good to the dollar. So we moved to Africa in 1990. That's how it is now. I moved to Uganda officially in 20, um, in 2012. No, 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 sorry, 2010. That's when I came back. And I've been here without moving to another country since. But before that, I had lived in Tanzania and Kenya. So I'm a Ugandan now. Been here long enough to qualify, and I also married a, a Ugandan man from Karamoja. Karamoja, those are like the Maasai people. Con congratulations. Every time I speak to people, there's always this thing of uh, once you live in Kenya, you become very Kenyan. And the other, yes. the, the other East Africans look at you like you're very Kenyan in your ways. Huh. You've lived in all these countries. Which country do you identify as? You know, um, a lot of people say this, and it's the truth. And although I am a Jamaican and I'm now a Ugandan, I feel most Kenyan. Kenya is home. If someone asked me where home is, I would say Kenya. Because I feel like I grew up there, you know, every, I know every corner, any river road, every corner of, Kenya, of Nairobi. And I've traveled across Kenya to, to several places. So, I mean, Mombasa is my favorite, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost every December, I make a point. If I'm not flying like internationally, it has to be coastal. And man, the stories. That's a very Nairobian habit of flying to the coast or going to the coast for a holiday. Yes, it was the thing when we were kids. And it's still the thing for me now. A holiday is not a holiday unless I'm at the beach, you know. And I actually meet more people on my holiday break. I see people in the coast, with, like in the discos or whatever, or at those random parties. Of course, there's so many random parties. So you see people you haven't seen in like seven years, eight years. But if you're just moving around Nairobi, you're probably not going to see these people. It's a beautiful city, but it's very fast. And we do not know how to sit, to just chill and sit down. You know, everything has to be in, in, in that speed. I didn't consider that, Daniel. I didn't. I didn't consider that, that, that Kenya, okay, that Nairobi moves so fast that this lockdown this slowdown must really be affecting you guys yeah it does Nairobi is a bubble so when you get out of the bubble and you go to all these other yeah. places everything just freezes and for mm -hmm. the first few days or the first day or the first hour you just don't understand why everybody takes forever to do anything because in Nairobi <laughs> you just want it now now and then when you go to these other places they go like Kuja Kesho and you're like can't you just do it what? now you know what I mean and I know you know everybody, and it's just a thing we do. And and mm. also, th there's beauty of just not being in that bubble. I was born and raised in Nairobi. I'm an Nairobi kid. Sometimes I love the slow life that you get in the villages, even even thirty kilometers from the city. You know, and it's just yes. such a nice, refreshing thing. I love to build on your sentences. You're a great leader. Um, my dad used to say the same thing when he bought the land where we built a farm and a house that was in Gong. So when he bought that land, we were like, man, this place is so far. All of our friends are in town. La la la. He was like, when I leave town and I come out here, I feel like 
I'm back home, you know, I feel like I've escaped the city. And so I just, I totally vibe off what you just said, because we were in Gong, that's 30 kilometers out, Gong Hills and the quarries, we used to see giraffes, just near the house. Amazing. This thing of people saying it's far and yet it's just across the road, yeah? You know, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yes. Yeah. You all need a bypass. <laughs> no, there are bypasses, but yeah, still. Going back to your 844 thing, yeah? Yes. I think most people live in their compartment. You, you're used to what mm. you know and you don't want to live. And then you find every time a Kenyan lives, like for example, you fit very yeah. well. You find your space in everywhere you've gone. Wow. You've just made me appreciate my 844 torture. Oh, my goodness. Wow. My baby is, I still have one, one baby. Yeah. I decided that this is, this is what I'm meant to do. Okay, I didn't really decide it, you know. I pray a lot and I meditate and this is what has been decided. Yeah. So my baby is 10 years old. He's just broken into puberty. I don't remember it starting so early, but yep, it started. He's called Kimathi Mbugwa Gushu. Yeah. yeah, he's a Kikuyu. I think in the creatives, we kind of, you know, like uh, mixed people, we tend to date Kikuyus. I don't know what that is. But then, yeah. to, to be honest, also, <laughs> my grandmother was Kikuyu and my other grandma is Ugandan. Mm. She's about 104 years old now. Wow. Yeah. She's she still good? She's still good? No, she she's ailing, but she's she's around. But you know, everybody yeah. else is gone, so. This is Kenyan Stories. So this is where I come back in and uh, deliver some not-so-happy news. Since uh, this conversation, the last time we had this conversation, we lost our grandma, and uh, as they say, she went to be with the Lord. So I just wanted to get in here and correct uh, that she was over 100 and, 106 years or something. And uh, we'll dear, I will dearly miss her and we will dearly miss her. Uh, it's hard when these things happen. And again, it's, it's really challenging sometimes. And I know, and I also want to just, and I want to reach out to people out, out here. There's a lot of pain and there's a lot of suffering. And living in a world of pandemic, uh, we've had a lot of losses, and uh, it's 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 challenging times. But I'm going to tell you this. Um, I'm just coming to terms to this, and uh, I've had a lot of losses. In my life, in the in the recent in the past uh, recent years, um, you gotta go on. You have to find something to hold on to and just keep going, keep going. You know, it's not gonna be easy, but you're going to. You got you're gonna have to keep going. So again, thanks for listening, and uh, it gets uh, it's get it gets better from here onwards. Um, it's going to be, uh, as we continue, it's going to be an amazing story. So please continue listening. This is Kenyan Stories. My name is Daniel Dua with my guest, Lissandra Chen. We get back to Lissandra in this wonderful conversation. We need 
to bring this conversation to happy points, happy moments. To... You've been real and you've been dull. Yes. <laughs> I want to take you back to your designs. You're a designer. Let, let's start with that yeah. because that's what I let's knew start. you for, right? Yes. And one pivotal fashion event that we did in Nairobi was at the Mara restaurant, uh, now City Hall or City Hall Annex, so oh, one wow. of those. Yes, that's true. And yes. that changed the scene for everybody. Because I remember I, I worked with uh, seven designers and I think uh, 20 models, and we were called mm. Pick Your Style Designers. And then we met yes. you. We met you. Please tell that story if you can remember. <laughs> remember all the details like you are tell it no i can't remember everything but that's what we that, that's that's how we met and the reason why that was pivotal is because before that we didn't have professional fashion models and 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 professional mm-hmm. designers and we just form a collective and event i think in about uh, six or seven weeks we did an event yeah. at that venue and we invited the mayor and everybody else and this was Yay. 20 years ago and those are the people oh. who went to carry the fashion yeah, that's true, though. I remember meeting people like Aqua Bonsu, you know? They're just... Anyway, gosh, you have great memory. I remember I one of my high points was getting DJ Adrian to do the fashion show. Gosh, I remember the long hours, long days preparing for that. You know, sometimes I wish I had stayed at that same, with that same energy, you know, and kept going. Because through the years, uh, we've seen people like Fundi Frank, you know, grow and and completely change what they were doing, you know, just grow and mutate into, you know, what they are doing now. And uh, big designers from Kenya are now all over Hollywood, you know, people are real big people are wearing the designs and appreciating them. I believe I would have gone a completely, to- a totally different path and may, may or may not be in Kenya now if I'd continued with fashion. But what I did do was I started a line of shoes and other accessories here in Uganda, and that's the Kaya brand. And there was a lot of fulfillment with that too. You know, it's something I have to pick up again. I had so many orders I couldn't fill coming from Canada, Ireland, mostly out by the way. I had two shops in Kampala stocking the shoes. Yeah, it was fab. I definitely have to go back to that. Feel feel very at home in the workshop and behind a sewing machine. Do you feel your spirits are at home when you're when you're when you're designing and being creative? Most definitely. You know, I should have used uh, this opportunity to channel you. When I am on long conversations, I draw mindlessly, draw, and so at the end, there's this lovely composition that I could have sent to you, but I didn't start. But yeah, I feel very at home when I'm being creative. My soul sings, you know, I feel grounded. It's, it's a lovely feeling. When I was a child, I used to sketch and I used to use scrap materials to make, to, you know, like dolls, dresses and things like that. I've always had an interest. One of my aunts is one of the largest designers in New York today. My other aunt, who my mom used to spend a lot of time with, was a tailor. So she would always be sewing up something and I'd always be sitting there, you know, either pedaling for her or just watching what she was doing. That's where it really all started. And then I went to Evelyn School of Design for about two, 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 two or three terms. 
I stopped when someone told me to be creative in a different way. I was like, no, I think I've learned a lot of technical, technical details on how to construct garments and ETC, but I will not be told how to be creative. So I left. And shortly after I left, I met some people who are working with leather and I fell in love with the whole thing. I started making the dresses. I started creating a fashion line. I, I started researching on how many pieces I would need, themes. I would spend a lot of time in the, in the library downtown, just looking at old, my goodness, such a treasure trove of, of old books on fashion and era books. I could look back in the 1920s and see what they were wearing and look back into the, like traditional wear for different tribes around Africa and uh, Native America also. Get so much inspiration from there. And I would just go with a book and make notes and make tiny sketches because, you know, there was no taking pictures with your phone in the library. So <laughs> I would make tiny sketches and, and little pieces that um, would inspire me. Like you could see a headdress or the way someone, the way they used to cut the shoulder or something like that. So I would just take it from there. When I thought I had enough sketches, then I went on to tailoring them and also giving other tailors to, you know, to uh, follow my, my lead and, and help me out to make the collection. I think altogether the first show, the one that we did, was about 30 pieces. Amazing, amazing. You mentioned a couple of things I want to uh, rally back on, yeah? Okay. So, so your aunts, do we know them? Have, have we heard of them? You said uh, one is in <laughs> New York and, yeah. Yes, you can go to Kushni. You can Google Kushni and you'll see the collection. It used to be Kushni at Oaks, but then um, Madame Oaks left. So Kushni is, is on her own, fully owning the brand and creative rights. You can check it out. She's dressed everybody, Alicia Keys, Michelle Obama, you know, it's, her label is doing fantastic. I haven't been in touch to find out from that side of the family how it is now that, you know, there's uh, the pandemic and all, but I've seen her start some campaigns about buying local. So, and supporting local fashion. I think she's finding her way back, which is fantastic. Amazing. And I think uh, just to go back, that's what we were doing because before we did the fashion events and, and, and created mm. that movement, people were not buying local. Everybody was getting Italian and Turkey mm. and whatever, all this stuff and English. Yeah. Savo yeah. Rose was a thing for men and, and women bought all these things from France and stuff. Our mm -hmm. old deal was let's use the leather and uh, use the the garments that are here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also there, there's something you said. You went to Evelyn School of Design, but then after two yeah. terms you left. Let me let me preface this in another way because people take it wrong sometimes. <laughs> I feel like everybody should go to college for the first yeah. for the first year. Uh-huh. At least for the first year. And then because you need to learn to socialize, you need to think, to learn how to think for yourself and then mm. now pursue these other things and then have a structure on the other hand, which we didn't have a structure that would support those programs. Because like in filming, mm -hmm. I never, I never learned from a film school. I was shadowing people who are actually doing major films and broadcast uh, channels, you know, like the, the news yeah. broadcasts, uh, international broadcasts. That's how I learned. So would you say that um, you leaving school just set an, a new path for you as a designer and as a creative? Yeah, I definitely do. As a young person in that kind of setting, it would have been easy for them to shape my mind in a different 
you know, way, uh, which may be more technical than creative. No, I, I didn't, you know, I, I really, I couldn't stay. My heart couldn't make me stay. I felt my creative force being drained. You know, I was like, this is wrong. This is an art school, you know, at its heart. And no one tells you how to express yourself and your own art. So, yeah, that was a turning point. And even now you still believe that, right? Oh, yes, most definitely. I wouldn't go back even today. <laughs> if someone wanted to be a fashion designer, but they were not very creative, fantastic place to go. Yeah. And I know it's turned out a lot of fabulous fashion people over the years. One of my best designers in Uganda is called Iguana. That's uh, Emmanuel Baguana. He's in the States now. He was there when, um, when the pandemic hit. So he's still in the States, but really, really wishing to come back. He also was in Evelyn, you know, and, and he, he finished and everything and he's doing well. So I think for, for some people it works well, yes, especially if they were not creative to begin with. They can learn their path from there and then start to express themselves creatively. Mm. So I wouldn't say don't go or whatever, or I just say know yourself and question the knowledge. This is something we learned in the 90s, question the knowledge. For example, you, do you think job shad shadowing, because now we don't even do, I mean, the, uh, the, there's uh, some nonsense called internship, which I don't even understand what it is anymore, because back in the day, it was actually job shadowing. You would, whatever you're studying, for three months, you would go to an industry or company or, or, or you know, a PR firm and you would learn that stuff in the real world. Now they don't do that anymore. Although I think, I think as creative, sometimes we are unfair because I'm not one of those people who tell people do not go to college. In fact, personally, I think uh, when you get out of high school, you should take one year off and you should do real life things. And then go to college, decide what if, if you need to go to college. And I also believe in technical colleges more than these other colleges, but then that's not the conversation. I do agree with you on all that. Yeah. I do. So how do you help people like that, especially now, and, and given now that the world has just lost its mind, what would you advise somebody who's coming to a situation where they have this time and probably they've lost their job and now they need to get into creativity or some of the stuff they used to do as children or when they were younger or some, something they have an interest. How do you get the courage to just pursue this stuff? Because creativity takes a lot of courage. Hello, so, hello, hello. This hello. is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. At this point, I want to come in and remind you that you listen to Kenyan Stories. And my guest is Lissandra Chen, a founder, fashionista, designer, all-around uh, human being that, who's gone through a tremendous amount of um, adversaries. Is it adversaries? Adversaries. And it come, has come through the other side. Let's get back to my conversation with Lissandra. My name is Daniel Dua. Thanks for listening to Kenyan Stories. This is yes. Kenyan Stories. Okay, so, hey. hey, I hope you can hear me. So, so, so clear. Oh, awesome. Crystal. Awesome. Yeah. We're talking about design. Yes. And how going to school affects different people. Exactly, exactly. It's very 
um, difficult sometimes to get inspiration to do artistic work. For example, I have four really beautiful pine frames that I made and I hung them up on the wall and I'm having to have purposeful meditation sessions so I can know what kind of artwork series of four should go into that space in my house. So sometimes um, being a creative, <laughs> you can really get in your own way, you know? Yeah. A super practical person would just be like, pick something out on Pinterest, print them out, stick them up, you know? No big deal. Tick that box. Place looks fabulous. But we want to labor over it as creatives. Uh, something you said about shadowing, I, you know, I totally love that idea. And it's something I'm going to do uh, with my son because now I've, I've had the opportunity to be the co-founder of bringofresh.com. We're an e-commerce site and it's basically for fresh food, that is vegetables, fruits, um, meat, um, dairy, bread. And now we're bringing in the designer cheeses made in Uganda, which is, yeah, something huge for us. Soon, I'd like to have the designer chocolates made in Uganda. But anyway, anyone can go to the site, order, and then we just pack the stuff. We box them up and take them to their houses. Now, we get the stuff from regular Ugandan businesses, 100% Ugandan farmers. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. It's such a good business. I love it. So this thing you're saying about shadowing, my son goes to the office with me now, and he'll continue to do that. And when we find his purpose, we shall school him because of that you get so we're starting from somewhere we know it's not sending kids to school so they can figure themselves out and come back and try to fit into the world if i find that my son is very interested in the, in the numbers in the accounting that's exactly what i'm going to send him to uni to do and he'll know when i come out i have a job at bringo you know and that's why I have to do this really well because everyone's will be everyone will be looking at me <laughs> uh, you know, even before shadowing was a thing, my, my parents used to, I used to shadow with my parents. I remember going to my father's lab and it was a big building and my father would talk to me as if I was one of those uh, scientists. He would tell me about the cold room and the hot room and, and the lab and the microscope. Those expensive microscopes which uh, wow. kids couldn't use in high school, in, even in high school in campus. I, I just would go and go like, yeah. what are you seeing now? All those kind of things. And my mom would do the same with me. You know, it would take me to work and all that stuff. And for me, I, I learned everything I knew. Even, even when I was doing fashion with you guys, I didn't know any fashion, but I had to learn. I had to call Paris and go like, okay, how do you do this? And then every time I met the girls, we'd be like, today we're going to do a themed shoot. Those kind of things, because nobody was there to teach us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. the, the question I would have for you right now is, living in all this culture and, and all these different places, and you say you're Kenyan, you feel very Kenyan, and you're comfortable being Kenyan, how do you manage to fit in or you don't even fit in? What's, what's, what's uh, that for you? Yeah, that's a really deep question. And you're right. You answered the question. I don't fit in and I'm fine. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> when you look at it, really, who fits in? You know, no one does. So, yes, I speak like a Kenyan. I work like a Kenyan. I live, I party like a Ugandan, you know? Take the best. Take the best from everywhere you live and all the people that you interact with. Um, they're always admirable qualities everywhere, you know? And every place and every culture. And uh, I 
I believe that this was a nice foundation laying for the oneness movement that I'm so connected to, you know? Because if you have to live everywhere and, 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 and kind of melt into everybody, assimilate and all those things, into every culture or every group at different levels of your schooling and different levels of your, your employment, yeah, you have to you have to come out with some love for every type of person. And I think that's great. And that's made it easy for me. What are the, some of the positives and some of the negatives that you have? Because like in Kenya, being, being mixed is not uh, such a positive most days. Not yeah. as bad as some certain places, but still it's a thing. It is a thing. But you know what's so funny? Whenever I visit Nairobi, all the kids are brown. Like everybody has mixed up with everybody, you know? You walk into a shopping mall, you can't tell who is half Kikuyu, half white, or half uh, Maasai, half white. You can't tell. Everybody just looks the same. So the next generation coming up in Kenya, there's going to be a huge explosion of brown people. You know, there's Chinese there, there's Somalis. There's everybody that that can mix up now. And it's not such a big deal. Correct me if I'm wrong. Nowadays, it's not such a big deal for a man of a certain tribe to bring home a woman of a different tribe. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wouldn't know because my family was mixed from back in the day, you know. Your perspective is from that. that yeah. Practical yeah. experience you had. And the worst mm-hmm. part is, I still don't understand tribalism. The very first time I saw it was when I was in college. Somebody asked me, what tribe are you? And I didn't have an answer because I never thought of it. Kudos to your parents, man. Kudos. It was just a generation that we grew up into, and and we are. I mean, it's it's all a pond of mixed people and mixed mixed. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it just you know when you're growing up as a child, you just that's just a thing you do. You know, it just it's just your family. You don't know any different. And I also understand because most most of the people in in this country are first generation city dwellers or first generation living yeah. from where they, they came from. So it becomes very hard. And, and then your roots are very strong. So over the weekend, you want to drive back to your rural home, whatever that is, or over the month or in the year. You see, that's a thing. But then if you're born in the city, then they say, oh, you know, you can't be from the city. You know, it's, it's a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the last few years yeah. that we haven't spoken about, you've, you've had a few startups. How did you come to the startups to start with? When I was doing Kaya, the, the company that did the leather, leather and kitenge accessories, the shoes and belts and things, I never thought of my business as a startup. I just had seen my mom start several businesses and just, just roll with it, you know, good times, bad times. So I never thought that I was, I never looked at it as a startup. You know, because when you say that, you think now investments, right? Investors and, and grants and things like that. But when I got into Bringo Fresh, we also thought it was going to be a struggling business outfit here in Uganda. And they were operating out of um, the innovation business. And that's where everyone goes when they have a small business because they can rent you a table and they can rent you a small office and they just give you good, you know, decent prices that you can plug in and have an office address and you start your business right instead of doing it from home, which gives you almost no structure. Yeah. So Bringo Bringo just blasted from there. We did Seed Stars, the Seed Stars competition. We won the third place. 
sorry, I think and I lost you for um, a second. You did what? Oh, we, we entered the Seed Stars startup competition and we won third place the first time around. And then, you know, investors just kept swamping one after the other after the other. Now, what we do is we, we continue to apply and we continue to pitch, but we're looking for the right partner, you know? We just don't want to take someone's $500,000 and realize that it's a bad relationship we entered into. Like I like to tell my business partner, Brian, I like to tell him that we're not going to starve to death. <laughs> like We've been, been surviving all this time. We're not going to die. We're not going to starve to death. So let's wait for the best option, you know? Let's not, let's not sell cheap. Yeah. What does Bringo mean? It's bringing and going. You know, farmers bring them and they go out. Mm. If I remember well, you said your, your parents were farmers. Um, I wouldn't call them farmers as such because it was more like a, you know, a home garden and um, goats and, and chicken. So they started when we were seeing them, you know, they bought that piece of land, they built that house, they demarcated an area for a garden. And we saw them like trying with the beans, trying with the lettuce, you know, and then, you know, my mom became extremely good at it because she's, she's one gifted woman. Like I, I struggle to be like her. all the girls, cause I have three, I have two sisters. So we're three girls. We struggle to be like her every day because she just did it all. And it was so effortless and we never saw her struggle, you know? Yeah. Like, we saw her do these amazing things all the time. We didn't see her tears. We didn't see anything like that. But so that, that generation her, didn't, didn't quite show their tears. I guess not, yeah? And we also try to hide from our kids, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I believe my mom is the one who got me interested in farming first. It's something about growing your carrots and your tomatoes and then harvesting them and then eating them, you know? It's wow. circle of life kind of thing, you know. So I'm glad my parents taught me that. And valuing it, even if it was the uncool subject in school, you know, and no one wanted to be a farmer. No one, wanted, no one wanted to tell us that their parents are farmers. So it was so uncool when we were growing up. You, It's like when you grow something, it's like you have a child, you know. Yeah. You see this thing from seed to fruit. It's a beautiful experience and there's nothing like it. You know, and to me, it's just another part of creativity. True. I, I remember my mom is the one who taught me how to do value addition. I, I was 14 or 15. We started growing tulips and we'd grow it organically and then we'd sell it to this farm, which had the chemical made once. And our, I think we, we, we got like 200 bob or 300 bob per, per bud or something. And we had like probably 100 bud or something like that. And then she would go in, yeah. into making uh, yogurt and, and, and uh, peanut butter. So value addition, and, and that's what I grew up with. That's what I, I bring to my coaching when, when I do executive coaching and stuff. It's, it's about uh, okay. the next five steps and those kind of things. So I, I feel like even within our traditional parents, you know, I mean, we feel, I, I, I hear this thing of African parents are traditional. I'm like, really? No, my parents are not like that. Because you, you just have to choose which side you're, you're, you're learning these things from, I guess. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Big, big point there. Big point. Yeah. And I think some, one, of, one of the most, uh, one, one of the things that pulls us down is because 
we're very myopic. We don't look at the horizon. We just look at, our, at, at the challenges. Tip of the nose. Exactly, exactly. We are talking here virtually, but we're sitting on, on this uh, conference room. And it's 20 years, and we're still uh, reminiscing about all the, the, the good stuff that, uh, that, that we've gone through. And it's not to deny that there were challenges, but this, despite the challenges we went through. And I think that's a message that's needed now. Don't you think so? Ah, oh, big time, big time. I listened to a lot of YouTube videos from this fellow called Moji. He's a, he's a guru. I'd put, I'd put it that way. And uh, recently, I'm talking about like, this now the second month, I got this message from him and other people. And in my life, I receive messages three times. If I don't get the lesson, it's going to be bad. <laughs> so three times this message came through to deny ego, you know? <clears throat> so what that means really is not looking at your situation from your eyes, but from the bird's eye view. And watch yourself. Be the watcher. See how this worry is not going to affect you in like a week's time. And that's how I've dealt with so many of my challenges, huge challenges that have come up in the past eight weeks. I just deny the feeling, the useless feeling of maybe anxiety. I deny it and I think of how it will be when this is over because how many challenges have we been through in life? Didn't they end? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. So I just focus on how it will be and what it will feel like when it's over. And before I know it, everything's sorted out, whether I had to uh, get a large sum of money or whether I had to move massive equipment from one plot to another or whether I had to pay a down payment on something large. I just think of, okay, when this week is over, I'm going to sit down, have a drink because all these supposed worries that are trying to invade my mind will be over. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, it's, it's a big lesson that, yes, we've been through a lot. We've struggled. We've learned from it, but it has to stop. We have to be more happy every day. This is Kenyan Stories. As we take a break, I'd like to tell you about another podcast that I do. It's called Conversation with Daniel Dewar. Here's a sampler. The catch is that you need to have your own self-care time where you just do things for yourself. Nobody else, no social media, no speaking to other people like that. I think it's just like you have to find willpower within you to abstain from all these things. This is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. Uh, tell, tell me about that uh, uh, hearing something three times. What's that? Uh, because I feel like it's, it's a great process. So how do you do that? Oh, yeah. Well, you just have to be sensitive. Be mindful. Know what's happening hour by hour. See, maybe you'll get a message first, a very stern one, saying something like, you know, reconsider that fridge that you're going to buy, right? And then during the week, you're going to read a newspaper story about a fridge that exploded or something like that. And then later on, maybe your mom will call you and say something else about a fridge, like, um, like I just got this new fridge, or my fridge is now dead, or um, I had to clean the fridge this week. She'll say something. So you get those three clear messages. 
and you you have to go with the overall theme. If it's don't get it now, then don't. If it's get a better one now and save later, then do that. Okay. And the moment that you obey this, some people call it spirit, some people call it the Holy Spirit, some people call it their angel, guardian angel, whatever it is. But the moment that you don't obey this, you are going to lose something precious. You're going to lose your time. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose something. Like something's going to be taken away from a bad child you didn't listen, you know? So, <laughs> wow, deep. I don't know if it happens to everyone. It happens this way for me throughout my life. It has been this way. Three warnings and then three strikes and you're out. That's very deep. I call it intuition, you know what I mean? And and it gets it comes back from my my my, mm-hmm. my childhood. But I, I like this method. But where do you get the first message? The first message is very loud and clear. It's very loud and clear. And usually, when you go to make a big decision, maybe you're going to marry someone, and the first message is loud and clear. I hate going to work every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it registers in your mind, hey, what did this person just say? <laughs> and then you keep you get the follow-up message which confirms it, then you get the third message, and that's just it. Maybe you decide, okay, I'm still gonna marry this person, but I'm gonna decide that I'm going to be the breadwinner. <laughs> 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 or I'm not going to marry this person because a job is a big deal for me. Yeah. So you make an informed decision from there, you know? Yeah. yeah. The first message is clear as day. But but then how do you know if that's doubt uh, or just your mind playing games? Is it something you can learn to, and, and live with every day and yeah. in making decisions every day? Is it one of those things? Yes, yes. It's a daily thing. I remember when I had my car accident, there was a repeated message about putting my, my AAR health card in my pocket instead of my bag. And I did it. And that's actually what made people know who I was after the accident and what to do with me. Just that simple act of putting the card in my pocket. So it's something, it's something that informs most of my decisions. And, and we've mentioned this accident. If it's not true traumatic, mm-hmm. can you just pro- probably just recap? Because I think it's a very pivotal point in your life that, that happened. Yeah, big time. So the anniversary was just the other day, um, July 7th. And uh, I call it my rebirth. Let me wait till these kids run. Okay, starting at why I was going where I was going. Um, that day there was a really massive party in, in Kampala. We used to have these parties called the Silk Anniversary. The Silk, Silk was a big club back then. So they used to do street parties and that was the in thing back then. So I was heading home. I had bought some trousers. I was going back to, my, to the uni, um, my little apartment type thing. So I was going back home to get the shoes that matched the trousers. So on my way there, and I'd, you know, I'd fought with my boyfriend like like a few hours before because he wanted to hang out and I wanted to shop. And, you know, those are things you fight about when you're in uni. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, going out inside the Matatu, heading out, out of town, just about to hit a place called Luboa where they have a steel rolling mill. So there are a lot of 
So it knocked us because we tried to but the other side of the road was a, a valley. So we tried to swerve and because of the impact, we just went rolling down the valley. Now, the first time that the, the Matatu flipped over, I went through the window and I landed on the street. Everyone else went down in the rolling Matatu. So, um, so I was the first one. I hope these kids are not too loud. It's, it's the new reality, so it's okay. Okay, so I was saying that um, everyone went down. Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, hey. Hey, okay. It just went out again. Sorry. The, 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 the perils of, of being online, right? My dream was to someday get everybody out of planes and do virtual meetings. And now the thing we're fighting for is to get back on planes and fly all over the world. You know? True. Mm. But I'm also that... conflicted with mass tourism because of uh, how it destroys the environment. So I, I think as human beings, we can never get satisfied. But sorry, you are retelling us a very traumatic experience that you had. Yeah, um, I don't know where I reached. Where, where should I pick up from? So you're in a Matatu and then uh, there was a crash. I think that's okay, it. okay. Let's start from there. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> we were going up the hill, and it was a blind hill, and the Matatu driver decided to overtake. So when we got first sight of what was coming towards us, it was a, an, like an 18-wheeler, 16-wheeler, I don't know, big, with a head, you know, the head and then the trailer going back. That's the one. So it was carrying steel leaving the factory. So it hit us and we went down the, the valley. There was a valley on the side of the road. For those who know the road to the airport, the old road to the airport, when you get to Luboa. So by that time, right now there's some shops there, but by that time there was only a banana plantation. So they went down in that. So when guys were going down, I was thrown out of the window of the Matatu. So I was on the side of the road and that's when, you know, I, I kind of woke up a bit and I looked down and I saw one of my sneakers was far away into the road. And um, and I remember thinking, did I fall down on the road? I was walking and I fell down. And then after just a very short while, I saw myself upside down. So I was viewing myself from the top. So I saw the police come and pick me up put me under the chair of the, the, the pickup. I saw people, you know, crowding around, people like trying to take what I had. And um, yeah, it was, it was weird. I saw a huge crowd gathering in the valley around the taxi, around the, the Matatu. So yeah, after that, I woke up in the hospital at night and I, I told the doctors that I had my health card in my pocket. They checked it out. I gave them my boyfriend's phone number. I gave them my mom and my dad's phone numbers. They called everyone. Only my boyfriend was available. He was looking for me because it was night now. So he came to the hospital. They told him that he needs to sign some stuff. He went and found my parents who were out partying. They came. They did what they did. And then after that, I remember waking up in airplane going to Wilson airport and then in the hospital 
that was the next time I woke up and now guys were, I was all stitched up and I was recovering from something. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is it hard to think about that even now? Because for me, like my my eight-year-old operation, the 21-hour operation, I, I try not to remember half of it, no. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't want to get into details even in my own mind um, because there were so many surgeries, there were so many, I lost count, that the prepping before, the, the anxiety, the, the feeling of losing your consciousness, Ooh, the fear of maybe I won't wake up from this one. I don't want to really go deep. That, that's okay. Even that's to okay. myself, that's you okay. know. But, but my question you know would be: How did you pull through? What, what did you hold on to? Because at some point, you know, it's easy to give up. But then, what what is it that drove you to like? Okay, I'm I'm gonna get through this. Because even when I when I when I came to visit you, you were very optimistic and and and. You know, we, we talked about normal stuff. Yeah, you know, it was really you guys because I, I would always have visitors, so many people. Yeah. I didn't know my mom was doing this behind my back. Like she was calling all my friends and telling my friends to tell my friends. So, you know, like so many people would come and no one would act like I was, like I looked, like uh, the way I looked because I, mean, I looked monstrous. You know, it was like not me at all. I was swollen everywhere. I was bruised everywhere. I had my teeth, my whole, my mouth was wired shut. It was a mess, you know? And everyone would just be like, normal. One of my exes came to see me. Yeah. And he was just like talking to me like I was the normal me. Making the same jokes, saying the same silly things. And it was really that that made me recover quickly because in my mind... I wouldn't really look in the mirrors or anything, but in my mind, I was the same. I was just a lot slower, a lot weaker, but I looked the same. And it was just like, can I just go back to school? You know, <laughs> I just <laughs> want to go back to uni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was really, it, there was a huge mind over matter thing that got me out of hospital in a month and two weeks. Broken bones, mended and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing what we can go through and, and come to this other side. After that period, uh, what was mm. your life journey like? Between that period and now, how did you get to where you are right, right now? Well, I, I went to art school, of course. So <laughs> the dream never died. Yeah. And I would make creative all the time. So it was always, you know, whenever I was on break or doing anything else, I'd always be talking to people who own galleries and did this and that, fashion designers and, you know, drawing, ghost drawing for a lot of people. Yeah, that's what it was. And then university was crazy. It was fun and crazy, although it got that, you know, it got that interruption in the middle. My first jobs were intense and great, you know, and I did an internship at an advertising agency also when I was in uni. So when I came out and I started working, it all came together. I did radio in Uganda for a long time. I was at Capital FM and then I did, um, I went to Sanyo FM, which is a youth station. And then I did advertising ever since. Even in between my startups, even right now, I've just been made the general manager of DDB Uganda. I don't think communication will ever leave me. <laughs> wow, congrats, congrats. Thank you. Yeah. And when did you get your son, by the way? Because he's 10 years old now. 
10 years ago, I met a really charming um, Kikuyu man. And um, our relationship was so great. And we had a child together. And then um, so many things happened. I think he had some mental health issues because of situations that were happening around us. He had lost his job. And then, um, and then I had to, you know, step up in my whole advertising thing so I could provide for us. And then he would get you know, small jobs here and there, but, you know, nothing like what he was doing before. And what he was doing before was very illustrious. You know, he was a banker and he was doing well at it. So I think it was a far, it was a far fall for him. And he did really bad mentally and he broke up because he really was abusive. And once that starts, it never stops. So yeah. you have to just get out of abuse as fast as possible. And that's what I had to do. I, my son... I was worried because he wouldn't have a dad all the time. But I was like, man, better me alone, yeah? <laughs> mm. do, do you think men, yeah. men fall, when they fall, we fall hard and we don't know how to, especially African men and in this region, yeah. we, we just don't know how to seek for help? Yeah, I believe, I believe in that so much. Again, the systems that, and the programs that we were put through when we were children really squared boys away from girls. And, and and gave them these unrealistic characteristics that go along with being a certain gender. They don't cry. They don't tell their wives, their girlfriends, their problems. You know, they don't want us to know that there's only five thousand dollars left in our account between us and poverty. They want to keep up the whole, yeah, you know, we're good. You know, uh, yeah, you know, they want to keep it going. Happy, everybody is okay. Everybody who they carry on their back is, is satisfied and, and feel proud of them. Because I, I realized later on that that's a big deal. You want your wife and your kids to, and your, your family in general to be very proud of you and what you do. Vulnerability was not ever looked upon in, in, in a fair way. I, I noticed these things with my husband and I, I'm like, man, I am the last one that you need to shelter from anything. You know my life story, you know, like if we're down, we're down. If we're up, we're up. It's cool. Like I will ride this wave. And it has taken so many face-to-face, eye-to-eyes, candlelight, whatever it takes to drum this message into this man that it's okay. You can tell me when things are going bad. Be vulnerable. Be as vulnerable as possible. I'm the one person who's not judging you. I, I know it's a far fall when African men fall. They don't even know what, how to deal with it. Can't vocalize it, can't cry, can't do any of that. This, this is an unfair question, but I feel like you've, you've, you, you, you are in the mix of it. So how do you teach, how do you teach us? How to do that? I think it starts from the, you know, the mother-son relationship. Um, not saying that because that's what I have. But I think it's important for your little boys to see a woman in a different light. They need to know that there are women out there who will be with you at your worst, you know. They need to really feel that unconditional love and know that, hey, it exists somewhere in the world. So, you know, it may exist in more than one person for me. And always validate them and tell them, you know, when they make their mistakes that it's not the end of the world you know, yeah, just you have to treat them the way you would treat 
The way you want your man to treat you and the way you want him to treat his wife. You have to find that those things, those key things that make those relationships work. Integrity, you know, um, loyalty. And teach them those things in languages and ways that they understand. Yeah. But, but the challenge is you teach them all this and they go to the world and they miss, meet these, I mean, because women have been empowered, but the boy child, I mean, he's been left behind. And then also they meet these people who are beneath them and they destroy, I mean, these women destroy mm -hmm. the men over and over and mm -hmm. over. So you find a man that's totally broken and he doesn't have these structures to work around, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a big challenge, yeah? A big guys. It's, it's a massive challenge. But like I tell everyone, they have to look at their households yeah. and make, make it into those things that they see in the world that they'd like changed. Because you really only have control over this little nuclear family that you run, you know? Yeah. You can spread this great gospel to your aunties and your cousins and your sisters and brothers and all those people. But you're not in their houses. It, it takes them to also decide that I'm going to make this little group a great group. Hmm. And that great group will inspire the other group. I mean, we're never perfect. I don't have a perfect marriage. I don't have a perfect child. But it, you have to be really persistent, um, mindful, and purposeful on a daily basis. And if you are doing your best and you've taught your people the lessons and they don't perform, now it's really out of your hands, you know? Yeah. It's really out of your hands. You've done your part. You've done your best. You, you just let, you let God, you let the universe, you let, you let the tapestry weave. True. Speaking of which, there's a perceived difference between Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, and you've been in all those yeah. countries. Is that true or is, is it made up? <laughs> it's so true. The stereotypes match up really well, you know? <laughs> Kenyans, you guys, yeah, the, the sharp ones, the smart ones, the con men, the, the fast move. Uh, is the truth now? Even, even a young Kenyan boy can charm the pants of you. You know, it's like, wow, how old are you? But here he is. And uh, Uganda, people are slower. They're more traditional. They love their cultures. And at the same time, the younger group would do almost anything not to be associated to Uganda. They like the new things, they like the foreign things, you know, all that. Like just kind of like the Nigerians are. Our Ugandans love life. Monday night, they're in the bar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they can't this they can't do without the social life, you know. People have found ways in this lockdown to keep bars open. You we people who had like permission to drive would use their evenings like ferrying <laughs> ferrying good friends from bar to bar, <laughs> you know? <laughs> close the bar. You know, the bar is like a house. Yeah. So once they close the gate, no one can know it's a real bar. They're not playing loud music. So people needed to socialize, and that's how Ugandans are. Tanzanians, they are even slower still. The business owners, the foreign business owners find it hard to, to communicate to their staff because a lot of them, that's why the, the English is not, was never a priority. Current president 
just is um well he's he's a genius in so many ways but in other ways he's 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 a bit tyrannical i mean the way i mean you ask your tanzanian friends about some of the things they know that i don't care to talk about now because politics no 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 the stereotypes are real and, and jamaicans also very and jamaicans yeah we're very much like ugandans and kenyans mixed together ugandans and kenyans mixed because we know how to enjoy and we over enjoy sometimes mm. and being happy and enjoying is the it, it is the the reason you live <laughs> true, true you have to be happy and you have to enjoy life work hard like kenyans at the same time the one thing i would love to get from jamaicans is the code switching in the formal setting in english world you you are all that and then you meet jamaicans and they just turn into that jamaican patois and it's such a beautiful thing i, I wish kenyans we had that you know because we speak swahili but it's generic swahili you know yeah yeah mm. we don't have that without true blood swahili no No, and my soil is crappy, to be honest. So, you know, uh, apart from the startup, what's life like to, for you right now? I mean, what what are some of the interests uh, outside of work and just, you know, like life and uh, finding that balance and things that make you happy now? Oh, what makes me happy? I've had the opportunity to do some artwork and get back to my real art roots. During this lockdown, yes, I've made crafts with my hands. I've painted mission to do a uniform for a popular company here in Uganda which I did all of that artwork that that's that's been the that's been the big awakening during the lockdown i had not picked up a paintbrush for years yeah. do you think this should be a marketplace for african art that just african driven and african centric every time you hear african art it's normally eurocentric or somebody from a eurocentric approach defining what art is for us the reason why i ask this is when we started doing fashion i'm i'm going to take you back 20 years ago we we just decided this is what's cool for us because i remember we used to dress the the, the hottest uh, musician and and the hottest whoever was you know taking the podium do you think we need a afrocentric system and marketplace yeah i think that would be a fabulous thing to do you know we could make our own um auction houses for art and all of that and finally control this thing which is what i'd like to call the last frontier of slavery because people come here get inspiration from our culture and cultural things go back and make entire fashion collections based on that they buy our our paintings and our sculptures inexpensively and go back and sell them uh, 50,000 100,000 a piece This is definitely the new frontier of slavery and I think we, a lot of us are selling ourselves willingly which is so tragic. If we had a body of East African artists who could make something as simple as a website and have a membership fee and meet regularly in their territories to inspire young artists and and just be creative and do drum circles and all this stuff that you know burns a fire on the creative people i think it would be fabulous can you imagine we are able to look at we have artists we have people who have phd's and so on art valuing our work and then we auction it to our own people or even internationally but on our terms would not be fun oh that, that would be amazing yeah it's 
can still be done. It's something that can still be done. And I think this is a time for things like that to be to be coded. This is the time for those ideas to be put down and uh, kept in a back pocket, ready for the world to open again. Because the things we have seen that are shocking about this, but if we had read up about what happens after recession, a lot of us wouldn't be too shocked. People still have money. Other people have found new ways to make money. And people want to spend their money. People even want to borrow and spend because they've lacked, they've lost out on so much time, you know? And there's that feeling of, of, of ordering your whatever it is, your, your new dress or whatever online and it arriving in the mail is not the same. It's not the same experience. So as soon as everything is back to normal or whatever normal they want to call it because I can't stand that new normal term. When people are able to move freely and do what they want again, you're going to find a lot of people going to restaurants. You're going to find a lot of people experiencing new things like golf, um, wine, local travel, domestic travel. You're going to find people going to the most boutique restaurants and having weekends away with their loved ones. You know, you're going to find people living a more fulfilling life. So if you're talking about things like consuming books and art, that will be a good time for them. And I hope that the African writers are writing, you know? I hope they're getting stuff ready. Yeah. But, but you know, the challenge has always been, and, and for me, I, I always insist we need a marketplace because look at uh, the Western world, everything is a marketplace. I mean, even the social media platforms are marketplaces. Yeah. Sure. But, but the question, I, I think probably one of the last questions I want to ask is, where you are now and where we were, mm. do you feel inspired? Mm. Do you feel pessimistic or, or optimistic? I feel very optimistic most of the time because um, I can look at opportunities. I can see opportunities from far. I love that I've had this journey. I love that everything happened. I don't regret a single thing about my crazy childhood. I don't. I just love that I had those experiences at the right time. Pessimistic about the future because... It has to be good. We have to go through, you know? It's a must. Wow. What is the first thing you want to do once the lockdown is lifted and the people are allowed to get back to whatever this life is going to be? What's, what's the first thing you, you are looking forward to? I'm looking forward to travel. The other thing I can't tell you, I can't say that on air. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's your story. You know, we're not on public radio, so, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my. I know, right? But, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to travel again. And I'm not even going too far the first time because I don't want to be subjected to too much. I just want to come down to the coast, rent like a big house, and just bring all the friends and family who I've missed so much and had so little of. You know, just bring like 10 people together and we cook and we laugh and we dance and we just be stupid and sleep half the day. And just have like four days of just surrender. And then we, we come back ready, you know, because no one's going to just jump back into the office straight. That, that, that's the Kenyan and Jamaican in you speaking right now, right? <laughs> amazing, amazing. Fun. I hope when I call you, you're available. 
Of course, I'm going to be there. I mean, I've, I've missed traveling, and I just discovered the Northern Kenyan because now there's a really beautiful road that goes from Kenya to Ethiopia. And I love Ethiopian and Eritrean culture. Oh, the Kenyan me can't pronounce that word. Yeah, so I love, I love those culture, and I love uh, eating fear fear in Jira and, and the coffee parties at, at night, those kind of things. Some of the things I wish we had in Kenya, but... Again, we have the life and we have the people. So yeah, of course I'm gonna be I'm gonna be there. If you ever make it to Uganda before that, yeah, we can do the coffee thing. We can do the coffee ceremonies, the Eritrean coffee ceremonies. There are so many Eritrean places out here. Amazing! I, I would be at home. I love it. I, I, I was there. I think when I. I think just slightly before we started that fashion thing, I was in Eritrea. I wanted to do a report because I didn't understand how you can have a country locked down. And they're mm. only right now thinking about that and dictatorship <laughs> because, I mean, so, yeah. And, and I, I went to this family and they had a coffee party and that stayed with me to this day. But mm. I love I love those traditions. I appreciate those traditions from all over the world. So that's a thing. I it, hear you. We can co continue for a long time, but do you think there's, there's something that you, that's pressing that I left out that you need to include in this podcast? No, actually, I feel satisfied. I feel like we talked about all the important things. For me, it, it felt like a bit like therapy. We just like, and reminiscing about old times. Yeah. So I think we can leave it there. We can have more podcasts in the, in the, in the coming days. So perhaps where do we find you? What are some of the interesting projects that you're working on? And probably what's your message to the people out here? You know, people are going through a lot of things, but then some people are also winning. So You can find me on bringofresh.com. All my details are there, all of the Bringo social media pages as well. My only message is um, watch the watcher, you know, always um, take another perspective on your challenges before you close the chapter on what's going on in your life. A lot of the things we think we're suffering, we are not. That's a big message for people who get anxiety or depression because uh, during this period I had my fair share before I really took the message on that I've been trying to learn and relearn every day. Don't look at now, focus on the future, see yourself in a better place and just manifest that into reality. That's it. Wow. I think that's a great way to end this conversation for right now. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for being with me today here. Welcome, thanks for having me. Anytime. This is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. This is Kenyan Stories. Wow, amazing, 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 amazing. I don't have much more to say. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you for listening to the end. And you're welcome to reach out to me anytime you like. I'm easy to find. That is Daniel Dua, D-U-W-A. Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, D-U-W-A. Reach out recommend Kenyan stories share this with your family your friends all over the place I would also like to thank Lissandra Chen for her time for being so open for being so vulnerable and also for being so inspiring thank you Lissandra I mean it's, it's it's been great to I've learned a lot from this conversation to be honest um, it took me to places that I didn't even know um, wow amazing I'm still in awe, to be honest, and um, 
Thank you for your friendship, Lissandra. Thank you for, for, for inspiration. Thank you very much for this, for this opportunity. Thank you very much for appearing on the stories today. Um, I'm almost speechless, you know. And um, like I said, it felt like therapy and also it felt, and, and to be honest, it was uh, called before or talked before. This was the first time we're talking 20 years. So that's really, really powerful. So thank you, Sandra. And uh, many blessings to you, your family, uh, your, your business, your ventures, all that stuff. You know, thank you. And until next time, thank you for listening. Kenyan stories, the stories of our time. Good stuff. I think that should have been the podcast. <laughs> no way. <laughs> when we get into gender things, oh my gosh, I can go for it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let, let me leave it there before I get into trouble. I <laughs> oh, thank you for your friendship and thank you for the inspiration. And thank you for being here. We are not too many of us remaining, you know, coming from that generation. Yeah. So I celebrate all of us that came from that generation and still um, not in the struggle, but still winning because we're still here. So for me, that's how I look at it.